0: There are weeks that I feel bad for Paul. This is one of those weeks. Tuesday mornings are kind of our planning sessions. It's when we get together, and he comes in the office, and you know, he says, "Well, what, what's uh, you know, where are you headed? What do you what do you want to talk about? Um, what kind of songs are you looking for?" And I said, "You know, I don't know." And he said, "Well, you're supposed to preach about Saul." And I was like, "Yeah, I don't think I'm going to do that this week." And he goes, "Okay, well, what, what are we going to do?" And I said, "Well, I'm not really sure yet." And uh, so I, was, I, I just I just knew Monday that I, I just I didn't want to. This wasn't what we should be talking about, and so um, yesterday I figured it out. So I, I hope it was the Lord and not uh, not panic, because I have to preach this morning. There's a great little book, um, and I want to put this up, So, that, uh, sorry for the false advertisement. These are the texts that we'll be looking at today, our main text is here, um, and these will be some supplemental text but there's this great little classic of christian spirituality i'm really interested in in the way that christians have have done exactly what what providentially chuck talked about this morning about how christians connect to god and there's this great classic called the way of the pilgrim uh, it's actually a, a Russian classic. It's not, it's not uh, something that you've probably read or heard before. Um, the, the, the idea of pilgrimage is something that is, is deeply entrenched both in East and Western forms of Christianity. You might have read Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. This is the sort of Russian version of that, of that book, The Way of the Pilgrim. In this book, uh, it tells a story of a, of a Russian Christian who, uh, who is crippled. And so he's really unable to do anything uh, any sort of form of, of, of work. And so what he does is he becomes a pilgrim. He travels from religious site to religious site, seeking to know more and more and more about, about God. And he's particularly haunted by First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17. Anybody know that off the top of your head? Anybody memorize that in Sunday school? Should leave 17 is pray without ceasing pray without ceasing he's haunted by this this verse pray without ceasing and i really resonate with that because i don't know how many lessons and sermons and, and i have listened to and sat through i don't know even how many lessons or sermons i have actually declared about the importance of of prayer we talk about prayer all the time and this seems to be a tall order pray continue to pray pray without ceasing never stop praying you translated various ways, and we as Christians make a big deal about that. We, in fact, we, we would call it doctrine, teaching. The way that you can know that you are a Christian, and the way that you can know that you're connecting appropriately with God, and one of the ways that you can know that you're actually walking faithfully with God is to say this, I am constantly in a life of prayer. And yet, if you pay careful attention to First Thessalonians 17, you'll notice that it is the middle part of a sentence, and when you uh, are, are learning English, you always, one of the first things you should learn is you don't start in the middle of the sentence, you start at the beginning, right? And you travel through to the end. And so this is one long sentence. It's a little more obvious in Greek, but you can see it in English. Your, your translation should have a comma or something. And so in verse 16, it begins with this. The thought that we focus on here, we, we focus on the praying continue part. The thought actually begins with this. Be joyful always. Some of your versions might say rejoice always, be joyful always, pray without ceasing, giving thanks to God in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Jesus Christ. That's the entire thought. We, we focus so heavily on that prayer part, it really struck me how rarely we focus on the joy part. And the joy part is actually where it starts. And the giving thanks part is is where it is where it ends. And the prayer part sits somewhere sandwiched between those two. Because you know when I think about it I think that we focus on the prayer part because that's something that's like manageable. Like I can get my hands around that metaphorically speaking. If I say to you listen God commands you, pray as much as you can. Pray all the time. Spend your week this week trying to add more prayer to your life. You can say, oh, I can do that. That's something I can try to add more and more of that to my life. But if I say, be joyful always, you're going to look at me weird, right? Be joyful. Be joyful my family is struggling. Be joyful when work is falling apart or I can't find any. Be joyful when I'm depressed, suffering from some sort of mental illness, be joyful when I've just miscarried, be joyful when cancer racks my relatives and the time that they have here is short, be joyful always. Now, pray always, that's sort of safe, and kind of pious, we can do that. Be joyful always, that's a tall. Order, isn't it? And yet, if the Bible commands us in this text that we ought to pray all the time, it also commands us to be joyful all the time. So let's think about that a little bit this morning. The word joy in English we use to describe a lot of things joy or rejoice. We have a a state of joy. When I walk into a bookstore and I'm assaulted with that, like, smell of, like, ink and paper. You know what I'm talking—I'm getting, like, chills just thinking about it right now. Like, just, ah, the joy that fills my soul. There's a hymn, isn't that? that a hymn? The joy—oh, the joy that floods my soul, right? That's kind of the—we have— we have the uh, uh, source of joy. We talk about joy as being a source of our life. I might say that that Emery is the joy of my life. Emery uh, can be really naughty, and she can be really angelic. Sometimes like, like she's like, I don't know, bipolar or something, Like, where all of a sudden she's like, I'm like, why are you doing that? Oh my gosh, you're so cute. Like, I <laughs> Being a parent's a weird thing, as many of you know. But she's a, the source of, of joy in my life. She's, she's just there, and I'm... I'm joyful. You have the the expression, like the expression of joy, like I jumped for joy. I jumped for joy. We use that expression. so we have ways of using the word joy, but but I want you to notice in each one of those instances that I give you that I think are in our common parlance, this way of talking about joy is actually not talking about joy at all. It's talking about pleasure. It's talking about pleasure. I find pleasure going to the bookstore. I find pleasure in my children. Well, yeah, my children. I can say that now. Uh, I find I find pleasure. I don't know, everybody knows that, right? We're Laura's it, we're expecting okay, good. That's old news. I don't think I ever announced that. Facebook did it for me. Thank you, technology. <laughs> uh, uh, but but what we're talking about here is is actually is actually pleasure and not joy. And and, and there is a strong difference. Between the two, uh, pleasure is one of those things that we go to the store and we purchase it 's an experience that we have because there 's a good relationship it 's something that can be changed externally it 's a relationship we have to the world that can be changed externally and, and pleasure always you can tell the difference between joy and pleasure because pleasure always wants more pleasure. Let me give you an example from last night. Uh, my, my pregnant wife says, "I want a burger and fries, and so where do we, what do we do?" We, We go get burger and fries, right? And so we go to Five Guys, uh, and uh, and we sit down and and I got this burger and it was, I, it was joy. No, it wasn't joy. It was pleasure. Like there's this moment where you you're like diving into it and I and I I demolished it like fast. It was so good. And I look up and there is my sweet Emery and she's eating a bacon cheeseburger and I have this dad moment of revelation. As soon as she says, you know, I'm tired of this and sets it down, the rest of that cheeseburger is mine. And I am going to take it and I am going to enjoy every single bite of it. And I'm just watching her. I'm like, come on, kid, come on, put that thing down. I want that. That's not joy. That's pleasure. Pleasure Desires more pleasure. There is no contentment in pleasure. Pleasure is one of those things that you want more of, that you need more of, that that dwindles, that goes old, that that you, you have to sort of replace it and replenish it always or expand on it when we're talking about sin. But joy is something that is totally different. Joy is something that we use to quantify. A word that we use often in the Bible is this word, peace. Peace. Joy brings peace. And by peace, I don't mean you're not in a fist fight with somebody. By peace, I mean there is a sense of wholeness and well-being. We could use another English word, contentment. When you have met real joy, real, true, godly joy, you don't want more of anything. You're content. You're at peace. This is the sort of thing that God wants to impart upon his people. There's an interesting thing in the way that words work there is a root to word, to a word, and, and then we play on it in our verbs and in our nouns. So you, you can follow with me in English. Rejoice has a, is the verbal form, I rejoice. And that root of that word is, is joy, which is, which is the noun, I have joy. In Greek, it's very similar. You have the word rejoice, which is karo. You have the noun joy, which is kara. But then you have another root word that derives from the same root, and that word is karis. And that word is Grace. Grace. Because our joy is directly, if we ask the question, where is the source of joy? Where do I find all that? We see that here in First Thessalonians chapter 5, that it is rooted in God's will, which is displayed, made manifest, and made available to us in who? Jesus Christ. And I submit to you that without Jesus, and this is sort of the bold claim of Christianity, that without Jesus, you can find pleasure throughout life. You'll find it in many places. Some of it will be good and some of it will be bad. Some of it will be fine and some of it will be sin. But you will never find joy that is deep, rooted, regardless of circumstances. The idea of giving thanks in all circumstances will never be available to you unless you root yourself in the will of God in Jesus Christ. Grace. Is that wonderful word that we read throughout the scriptures that God gives unmerited? That is, God gives you grace, and you know what you get to do? Receive it. God gives you joy, and you know what you get to do? Receive it. That's it. It's pretty simple, and yet it's so hard for us to wrap our minds around. I was so, so pleased as Chuck and I was, was sharing with me just as he came up. He said, because we, we had talked about the communion meditation, he asked me what I was preaching about on Wednesday, and I said, I got no idea. And he said, Well, that doesn't help me much at all. <laughs> So this is what I'm going to do. And I said, go ahead and run with it, brother. And he came up to me and he said uh, that this, uh, yesterday that God threw his plans in, in, in a wreck. And his message this morning was desire God with your whole heart. It just happens to be that my message to you this morning is the same. Desire God with your whole heart. Because that is the root and source of all joy. Joy is what happens as a result of Our relationship with God, it is not something that we can manufacture inside of ourselves. We can manufacture pleasure, we can purchase pleasure, but joy can't be any of those things. In fact, C.S. Lewis describes it as something that exists because we don't desire joy itself, but we desire something that can bring us that joy. My argument to you this morning is that the one who can bring you true, real, completing, life-sustaining joy is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. That's the purpose. That's, that's the end goal. I, I talk about, and I, I know, and, and this might bother some of you, but I, probably more than, than other people, I, I talk a lot about judgment and I talk about sin and I talk about the realities of hell. And I do that because I feel that we in fear that we are in a society that as Christians is sort of largely setting those aside and thinking of them as unimportant when I think they're very, very important. Because they stand as a warning that God is giving to us. But that's not the end goal. That's not the end game. It's not like this is God's plan is to judge you and and, 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 and send you to hell, and that's like God's will. No, God's will is that you would find the deepest sense of delight. And pleasure, and it 's in him the mature Christian does not avoid sin because the mature Christian is afraid of judgment. the mature Christian avoids sin because it un- because he or she understands that the deepest joy can be found only in God, and that anything that takes us away from that focus is less and undesirable and this i think is I, I would argue is the is the point of all of scripture we've we 've done a lot of uh, hymns today, I would point you to Psalm 63 which I think really gets at that echoing a lot of what, what Chuck read from from the Psalms as well Oh God you are my God earnestly I seek you my soul thirsts for you my flesh faints for you as in a dry barren land where there is no water. So what do I do? I, I'm like a desert. And if you've ever been to a desert, you know it, it's dead, it's barren. There's just sand. There's no life in there whatsoever. If that's your life, if you're experiencing that right now, what should you do? There's no joy. There's no happiness. There's no, there's just barrenness. A weary land. What do you do? He says, so I looked upon you and your sanctuary beholding your power and your glory because your steadfast love is better than my life. So my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich five guys kind of food. And my mouth will praise you. With joyful lips, when I meditate upon you my bed in the midnight, when I mediate meditate uh, on you in the watches of the night, for you are my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. You see, the message of the scripture is that the all-satisfying object is God Himself, that you are seeking joy. And finding pleasure in things that that fade, that perish, that wane. And yet, what you should do, is, if you are in that dry and barren land, find the source of living water. The water that doesn't fade, that doesn't run out, that doesn't perish. The the water that bubbles up to everlasting life. Find that. That is found in Jesus Christ. When, When people meet that joy they rejoice. They give praise to God and they unashamedly lift up their hands and declare his praises. Do you want to know if you're in a right relationship with God? Because many of you here this morning, as I survey you, I know you've been Christians for many years and Chuck hit it right on the head. What happens to us is we grow old and crusty. Crusty old Christians. And you can be a 20-year-old crusty old Christian. I've met a lot of them. Age has nothing to do with it. But a Christian who has been saturated by a knowledge, just as Chuck said of our smallness and God's vastness who has understood this great grace in which we stand, not of our own doing, but because our names, as we sang this morning, are written on his hands and our names are written on his heart and God in his great love has stretched down and poured into you his Holy Spirit, poured into you his joy in his life. Man, that's not a crusty old Christian. That's a Christian who stands very strangely singing in their car and on the street corners the praises of God declaring his greatness giving thanks even when things are really broken and falling apart they're able to say you know what god has a plan i really have no idea whatsoever what that plan is amen but god has something he's doing here and i have the patience to see it through that is joy doesn't jesus talk like that he talks about the kingdom of god in matthew chapter 13 he gives all these little parables and he says the kingdom of god and when i say kingdom of god there's kind of a shorthand jesus new testament way of talking about what god is doing in our midst right now and how he's going to fulfill that when he comes again restores creation, resurrects the dead, and rules over us for all eternity. The kingdom of God is kind of the shorthand for that great story, that great story arc that we are living out. He says the kingdom of God is like this. It's like a man who is walking through a field and he stubs his toe on a treasure chest and he says, oh my goodness, that's a treasure chest. And he runs home and he takes everything, all of his books, all of those precious, lovely books, off of his shelf, and he takes him to the bookstore and he gets all of that money and he takes it and he buys that plot of land because the treasure is greater than any other pleasure. It's like a man or, who's going through a marketplace and he finds a pearl and the pearl is large and is gorgeous. You never see anything like this. And he goes home and he, and he does the same thing. He grabs everything off the shelf and he takes it and he sells it because the, the joy that is found in this is greater than the pleasures, all the pleasures, of all the ages and all conceivable worlds. There is nothing like this. We are to find our deepest joy and pleasure and desire in the one true and living God. But what is the fruit of the joy? Let's say, let's say we begin to produce this. Let's say we live out 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. That one long sentence. Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks in all circumstances, uh, for this is the will of God in Jesus Christ for you. What is the fruit of that? And I think it is explosive mission. I think that it is explosive mission mission we think a lot about how to reach out in fact what's interesting about the two parables i mentioned the next parable the parable of the net is a missional parable it says that there was a man the kingdom of god is like a man who threw a net out and the net gets into the water and this is how they would fish they didn't fish with a single reel but with a net and they would they pull it in and, and all the fish would be caught up and pulled up into the boat and then brings the boat to the shore and he begins to sort the fish the good and the bad the, the great net is this great kingdom that is sweeping people up, and if you're a Christian here today, if you're a believer here today, your passion ought to be to share Jesus. You're a part of that net that's grabbing people and bringing them in, but I want you to conceive of, just for a moment, that the dark clouds that are around your life, the dark clouds that are around your family's life, or the dark clouds that are around your friends or your enemies, the people that you know at work, their life, and what do they see in you? They see somebody who is joyful always, who is constantly praying to the Lord, and constantly giving thanks because they recognize that God has a will for you, a desire for you, and he, is, and he is bearing that out in Jesus Christ, man, you will be the light in the darkness. You will be the one person who, when times are really tough, people can go to, and they might not even know why they're coming to you. Getting pumped about Christmas. You guys getting pumped about Christmas? I know that was like a gear shift really hard, but I, I, there's a point there, I promise. But I'm also pumped about Christmas. The story of Jesus coming into the world is marked by tragedy, isn't it? You remember the stories? How many children died as Herod sweeps through and kills all of these babies and toddlers? And, and, and Joseph flees, and, and of course, the whole Mary scandal thing. I mean, Christmas is marked by some dark clouds, isn't it? And yet, what's the message throughout? Those dark clouds, and yet, Mary, Mary comes and visits Elizabeth, and once she says, Once I heard your voice, my child leapt for joy in my womb. Zechariah foretells uh, the birth of, of, of um, John the Baptist who's going to forerun. He says, your birth and coming is going to bring joy to all kinds of people. The magi see the star in the east and they recognize this is the light that's gonna lead us to the Messiah and they leap for joy. The angel appears before the shepherds and they fall on their face sore afraid. You remember that? And they say, fear not for we bring good news, gospel, same word, gospel of great joy for who all the people for unto you today the savior is born even though the clouds are dark the joy of the lord shines forth as jesus christ enters into the world to transform us and change us of course my favorite passage of christmas aside from revelation 12 is john chapter one which tells us the word became flesh and dwelt among us and and we have seen his light We've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, coming from the Father, full of charis. You remember that word? Full of grace and truth. For grace, for the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, and from his fullness we have received charis upon charis upon charis, grace upon grace, upon grace. This is the mission of God in the world and he has brought and filled you with that same joy so that you can participate in that same great net throwing of gathering up people and bringing them into his presence. So what are some of the habits of joyful joyful people? How do we do this? We are a very pragmatic church. Our people have always been kind of very pragmatic. Uh, we don't really go in too much for philosophy or, or systematics or anything like that. Uh, we don't really try to dive deep into theology. We sort of try to read the text and let it sit as it is without asking a lot of questions, which is good and bad. So we read a line that says, pray continually, and we say, I can do that, right? That's a command of Jesus. I can do that. We read a command like, be joyful always, rejoice in all circumstances, give thanks in all circumstances. We should recognize that in the same way. We use this word doctrine. If you are a Christian, there are things you have to believe. If that's not true, then what's the point of being a Christian? Everyone's a Christian. It doesn't matter. There has to be sort of guardrails that differentiate a Christian from a non-Christian. And, and we're, we're, we're well aware of some of these things, the divinity of Jesus Christ, the, tr- the trinity, the sufficiency and inerrancy of Scripture, things, these kinds of things. We also mark things like practices, Christian practices, like prayer and Scripture reading and all these kinds of things. But how rarely do we say, are you a Christian? I can tell it by your joy. I can tell it by your giving thanks in all circumstances, and that's, that's what we see here in First Thessalonians. I think if we ask the question of how do we even do this, because sometimes I certainly don't feel very joyful, and a lot of times I don't feel like giving thanks at all. Right? Yes. An honest person out there. What do we do? Read the text backwards. Start with verse 18, then 17, then 16. 18 begins with this. Understand who you are in Jesus Christ. Understand that God has A will for you understand that that will is that you begin to give thanks because even if you don't feel like it you can do that can't you you can give thanks and then as you're giving thanks praying continually giving it to god asking god for help giving god glory recognizing his his divine attributes and his power and then we can come to that point of verse 16 that says be joyful always rejoice always if you find it really troubling I think reading the text backwards and forwards can 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 help there. And what I'm not doing this morning is I am not asking you to be fake. I'm not asking you to put a smile on your face even when everything is crumbling around you and you don't feel like it. I'm not asking you to be false at all. In fact, one of the things I find so fascinating about the Bible is that the Bible just doesn't pretend. If you look at the Psalms, and this is something I often suggest to people who are going through hard times, I say pray the Psalms. Open the Psalms up and read them as your own prayer. Let them be your voice. When you don't know what to pray for, open Scripture and let it pray for you. It's the voice of God. If you open up the Psalms, just open up the first page, Psalms, Psalms. I'll jump to three, because one and two are pretty familiar to us. Psalm 3 begins with this. "O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, my life, there is no salvation in God for him. Anybody ever feel like that? Your faith is under attack. Everybody looks at you and says, there's no God, and there's no help for you in God. You are on your own. The psalmist comes out with this like, initial shotgun blast of darkness. And how does he conclude it? Salvation belongs to you, O Lord. For you are a blessing to your people. Psalm 4. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress, so be gracious to me and hear my prayer. You ever been there? Calling out to God. God, where are you Can you answer me, please? The last verse of Psalm 4, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Psalm 5, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my God, my King. For to you I pray, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. Hear that pleading that ends in verse 12. For, bless, uh, for you bless the righteous, O Lord, and you cover them as a shield. Ver, uh, Psalm six, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, but be gracious to me, for I languish. How many of us have been in times of sin? We recognize that we've wandered away from the truth. And it ends. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled, and they will turn back in a moment and be put to shame for the Lord hears my plea and accepts my prayer. I love the way the psalmist does, does this. The psalmist will open up with an honest plea. This is where I am. But as the psalmist considers the great grace, work, power, and sovereignty of the living God, the psalmist can only come to one conclusion. Rejoicing always and giving thanks despite the circumstance because that is the criterion of faith, to believe that God will deliver us, even when it feels like God won't deliver us. I love uh, Ephesians chapter five. Ephesians chapter five uh, has this great passage. Verse 15 says this, "'Look carefully, then, how you walk, "'not as unwise, but as wise, "'making best use of the time, because why?' The days are evil. Can I get an amen? I mean, is there a witness here today? Like, Paul says it's 2,000 years ago, and we're like, boy, that's true. That's true. What do we do? The the days are are evil. The dark clouds have surrounded us. There, There seems like there's no hope at all. What in the world can I do in light of all of this? Verse 11, therefore, don't be foolish, but understand the will of the Lord. That sound familiar? We just hear that from First Thessalonians chapter five, verse eighteen. Understand what the will of the Lord is. What's the will of the Lord? It's not that you get drunk. It's not that you come home after that long day and say, "I want to forget this day." Pass me a drink. But instead, it is to be filled with the Spirit. Look at verses nineteen and twenty through twenty-one. I, I, through twenty, I want you to notice what is implicit here, but not directly stated. Addressing one another, what does that mean? How many people are in the room? Yeah? How many people are in the room? At least two. There's more than one person. Our darkness tends to drive us to separate ourselves from other people. When you are depressed and you are down, when you are sick, when you are broken, the last thing you want to do is go to church, right? Yeah. And what's the one thing you need to do? Go to church, right? Because you need someone to carry your faith for you sometimes. It's not wrong. It's human life. Sometimes the days are evil, and you're like, I can't carry this anymore. So what is your recourse? Your recourse is to go to your brothers and sisters in Christ and say, carry this for me for a while, because I can't do it on my own. I've been there more times than I can count. Like, let's be honest about life. I think the scriptures are. It says, go to one another, and what do you do when you're there? Encourage one another. Address one another in psalms, in hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always. I seem to have heard that somewhere. And for everything, to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the scriptures over and over again, they don't play, they don't pretend like things are easy when they're really hard, but they say the time is hard, the days are dark, but there is way for you to be strong and full of joy despite all of the darkness. And I tend to believe that one of the reasons that God allows, because you see this great uh, Throughout the New Testament, this, this great talk about struggle and suffering. Our story is that of, a, of the Messiah who dies on the cross. Not an easy story. A story that isn't, you know, frilly and happy. Uh, it's real. It's, it's, it's deep. It's painful. It's difficult. It's very life-like. And in the midst of all of that, the Bible says there is a recourse, there is a way to live your life so that you can be in the deep and the darkness and yet still have joy, and that is your opportunity to shine like a star. Some of you are going through very difficult times right now, and I say that the reason that those times have come is because God wants to shine through you. God wants to take that darkness, and he wants to... Reveal his glory through your struggle if you will give it to him. And so, I I have some practical suggestions. What do we do in order to kind of get at this be joyful always? What are some things that we can do? We can read the Bible. Shocker, right? I know you are just floored by that. New message to you this morning. Read the Bible. Open the scriptures and and learn the great promises of God. Learn about his mercy and his love. Learn about his power and his grace. Learn about his might and his majesty. And recognize that if all of that is true and your name is written on his hand and on his heart, what have you to fear in the face of any enemy? So you can be joyful in all situations. Pray the Psalms. If you run out of words to pray, and I've been there, things are so dark, and you just you got nothing left. Open the Psalms and let the heart wrenching truth of the Psalms be your voice to God. Sing, dance, be silly. I really appreciate. Uh, Paul often forcing us to stand. One of the things that we often do is we have so much pride in this room about looking respectable, don't we? Joy doesn't look respectable. When I walk into that bookstore, I don't look respectable. We don't look respectable. In fact, that sort of ties in here to four. Hang out with kids. When's the last time you found a respectable kid? That's that crusty old Christian who somehow hated it at six years old, right? that, that's, that You don't have that. These kids are running around and they're free and they're happy. There's a sense of joy and pleasure and excitement. It seems like Jesus said something about receiving the kingdom like a child. I could have swore I heard that somewhere. Jesus says, go play with kids because they make you forget yourself. And they have trust in mom and dad, just as you are to have trust in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This morning, I'd leave you with one verse, well, several verses, but chapter five, Romans chapter five, in light of this great command, this great command to be joyful always, to pray continually, to give thanks in all situations, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus your Lord. This is made possible by Romans, the truth in Romans chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we've obtained access by faith into this grace. And I love the way he puts it in this, like, right now sense into this grace in which we stand. Not which we go to, in which we stand. Not which is about to come, in which we stand. Not which we left behind, no, in which we stand. This grace that we stand in. And so we have the ability to rejoice. In the glory of God, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, in our dark clouds, in the dark days, knowing that the suffering produces endurance and endurance, character and character. Hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through this great procession of struggle that God allows us to go through so that his glory can shine, so your faith can grow, so you can stand before the world light. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. This morning, if you are struggling, this morning, if you are in need of prayer, we're going to have elders down front, I'll be down front if you need prayer, if you need a shoulder to cry, and if you need somebody to walk with you, if you need help, we are here as a family to sing together, to encourage one another, to bear one another's burdens. You are not alone. Rejoice in the Lord as we stand and sing this song.